Welcome to the My Psychology Podcast. Thanks for joining us. My name is Andy Pomerantz, and I'm a psychology professor at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. I also happen to be the author of the My Psychology textbook from Macmillan Learning. In each episode of this podcast, instructors from various colleges and universities join me to talk about the most important and most interesting parts of the chapter to help you understand and appreciate them. As we do, we will share some stories about our own experiences with concepts from the chapter from inside or outside of the classroom. Okay, in this episode of the podcast, we're going to focus on chapter five, which is the chapter on memory. And joining me today, I have two other professors who teach the introductory psychology course. They are Dr. Ava Selly, who is a principal lecturer in the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University in Tempe, Arizona. Hi, Ava. Hi, Andy. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for being with us. Thanks. Glad to be here. And we also have Dr. Anita Tam, who teaches this course at two colleges. She is an instructor at Tri-County Technical College in Pendleton, South Carolina, and also a lecturer at Clemson University in Clemson, South Carolina. Hi, Anita. Hi, Andy. Hi, Ava. It's good to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So here's a quick summary of Chapter 5, Memory. The chapter starts by defining memory and its three steps, encoding, getting information into memory, storage, retaining information, and retrieval, pulling information out of memory. It then describes various types of memory, including explicit memory and implicit memory, and then different factors that can influence memory, like decay, retroactive interference, proactive interference, the primacy effect, the recency effect, flashbulb memories, mnemonics, the spacing apart of study sessions, and sleep. Finally, it describes memory problems and the reasons for them, including amnesia, the misinformation effect, memory mistakes, and psychological disorders. So, Anita, I'll start with you. What's an important topic from Chapter 5 that you'd like to bring up? Um, well, I love Chapter 5, the memory chapter. Sometimes I even, uh, in the past, have started the semester with this chapter after, of course, the introductory chapter, Chapter 1. I might go out of order because I think this uh, chapter is very useful for students to help them retain information they learn from this class. You know, I start out uh, talking about really the levels of processing, levels of processing in uh, ways that uh, students can better learn information for the long term if they engage in deep processing, attaching meaning to information as opposed to just a shallow, superficial observation of uh, any kind of stimuli or the information that's in their, in their senses. Anita, I so agree with you. And this chapter is just so incredibly useful. Uh, and I tell them that the immediate value of this material is potentially there for them to do better in the class, to do better in their other classes, to really understand how memory works. And I make the distinction between memorizing and remembering. And that's sort of my own distinction, which is, you know, we're not talking about just memorizing stuff, sort of what I call like sort of flashcard studying. Oh, I love that distinction you make about uh, remembering versus really, you know, memorizing. And I often use an example of asking students, you know, on their way to school, did you pass a lot of cars on the road? And they say, yeah, there was really bad traffic. And one might even say, that's why I was late to class. <laughs> and I say, well, what cars do you remember seeing? And most of them can't remember. 
a single car. Uh, and then maybe a handful of students will you know, keep their hands up and say and describe the cars that they saw. And then I ask why, like, why did you see a blue Dodge Ram? Or why did you see the, a police car? Is <laughs> what they remember seeing, or the chicken truck. And it, there's always a personal story, like, you know, the, the blue Dodge Ram that's been their dream car for a while, or the police car could have given me a ticket. And I was speeding because I wanted to be get to class on time and uh or the chicken truck was just really stinky and it was really annoying and it blocked my way so it thwarted their goal to get make it to school on time and so those are always great examples to show that deep processing of you know the cars that they sh they saw they passed on the way um that they there's a dif difference a distinction between that shallow uh super structural superficial level of processing where they must have seen the cars because otherwise they would have run into them but they may have seen the color, the size, maybe even acknowledge the brand of the car at the time. But that deep level processing, which allowed them to remember specific cars, were those that were processed at that deeper, semantic, meaningful level of experience. And once they are able to think about it that way, then they really understand how they can use this approach to studying and elaborating on the material and making it meaningful to themselves as opposed to memorizing rote definitions. Definitely. Ava, from Chapter 5, what, what do you find especially interesting or important? Well, because I teach psychology and law as well, I actually spend quite a bit of time and energy on memory in that course because of all the interesting interplay with eyewitness testimony. So, you know, one of the most important elements of memory or understanding how memory works is the fact that, you know, memory doesn't have a playback button. You know, we're not recording everything. And I, I, you know, sometimes I kind of fantasize about that. Can you imagine how amazing it would be if we just sort of like recorded both our experiences and things we read? We would be so smart. We'd know so many things, but so many things just sort of pass through us. I have you know, read almost an entire book before realizing, I think I've read this before. <laughs> and and that's really sort of surprising. Like, oh, wow, I must have read this at some point because I know exactly how this is going to end. And oh, yeah, I did read this a few years ago. So the reality is that a lot of the things that we experience and take in sort of dissipate. And we have no way of retrieving them by simply, you know, going back into archives and replaying them. So when we do access memories, we tend to sort of reconstruct them and we it's like puzzle pieces and we we have some of the puzzle pieces but not other puzzle pieces and then once we have enough puzzle pieces then we sort of guess what's in the areas that are you know where there are gaps and our mind sort of fills in those gaps in certain ways and we reconstruct a memory based on what likely happened in those gaps what's likely to be there or what our experiences are what the what's sort of typical and so on and all of that reconstructive process is impacted by so many different things and, you know, Elizabeth Loftus is discussed in this chapter, and she is one of the preeminent researchers in this field. And there's just so many sort of interesting things that she's observed about the impact of various factors on memory. So, for example, things like language, right? So what type of language you use when you ask people about their memory. So when she did an experiment where 
people you know saw a car accident and were asked how fast they thought the cars were going when they and in the research they used different verbs like when they hit one another or when they bumped into each other or when they collided or when they smashed and the more vivid the terminology like smashed the higher the estimates of how fast those cars were going and so something like like language can affect how memories are retrieved and how they're recreated in our minds so that different eyewitnesses perceive this car accident as being more damaging and you know because the cars were going really fast versus you know not so fast let's take a quick break here and when we come back we will continue talking about chapter five the memory chapter of the my psychology textbook The My Psychology Podcast is brought to you by Launchpad from Macmillan Learning. When I wrote My Psychology, I wanted students to maximize their connection to the science of psychology, and Launchpad does just that. It's the one place where you can find the full ebook of My Psychology, features like My Take videos, chapter apps, and show me more links, and Macmillan's full library of resources, including videos, flashcards, concept practice activities, and more. Best of all, Launchpad includes the Learning Curve Adaptive Quizzing System, designed based on cognitive research to improve your learning and help you retain information over time. In addition, the Learning Curve algorithm chooses questions based on your performance, delivering a quiz that is unique to you. If you aren't using Launchpad already, you can sign up for a free trial right now. That's right, you can get 21 days of free access right now by visiting launchpadworks.com and searching for my psychology that's launchpadworks.com sign up now for your 21 days of free access and start studying with the learning curve adaptive quizzing system welcome back we are here discussing chapter five that's the memory chapter of the my psychology textbook i'm andy pomerantz and i'm the author of the my psychology textbook and a professor of psychology at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville, and I'm here with two other instructors of the uh, the Intro Psych course at uh, at different schools, but using the same textbook. We have Dr. Anita Tam, who teaches the course at two schools in South Carolina, Tri-County Technical College and Clemson University, and Dr. Ava Selly, who is a principal lecturer in the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University. Ava, any other topics that you wanted to, to bring up? So yeah, I wanted to talk about the misinformation effect is probably the most important thing, which has to do with the fact that we tend to weave new information in there so that when we reconstruct a memory, suddenly we've got new stuff, new information that ends up in there. And I, you know, I have a personal story about this that's actually kind of bizarre, which is in graduate school, I went to graduate school in Miami and going on a cruise was a fairly economical way to go on vacation because everything was included and we were so close that we could get these really great last minute deals. And we were out with some friends and I was telling this fun story that happened on a cruise and I was pointing to my friend my colleague. And I said, Oh, you remember that cruise we were on? It was that weekend cruise that we did. And it was, you know, all of these things. And she's looking at me totally blankly. And I'm saying, no, 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 no. And then we did this. And then we did that. And she's like, Ava, I, I was not on that cruise with you. And then I'm like, are you sure? I'm, I'm, I don't, you remember this? And I, I go into this whole story. She's like, Ava, no, it, that, that wasn't me. And I went home and I went through my photos and I realized, oh my God, 
it wasn't her. It was another, you know, friend that I had gone on this cruise and we had did these, like I said, these, these smoke and deals kind of weekend cruises quite regularly. And it was somebody completely different. And so I had somehow switched people in some way. But that's not the end of the story. Months and months and months later, we were with a group of friends and this particular friend was there and we were telling funny stories and, you know, I, I was about to tell my really funny story. And as I started it, she jumped in and finished the story. And she's like, wasn't that amazing? And I looked at her and I said, what do you, wait a minute, what are you talking about? She's like, yeah, that cruise we were on. And it was sort of this what just happened here? <laughs> because I never had the conversation with her after our initial conversation that I had confirmed that she was not, in fact, on that cruise. She had somehow woven this all together and I had created the misinformation effect for her, which is that she then wove my memory into her memory and had allowed me on some level to convince her that she was on that cruise with me. And it was, and we had so much trouble sorting this all out of what actually happened and who it happened with that we had to pull out photographs and stuff. I think those are great examples. And, you know, it reminds me of something I do in class that really brings it to life. Uh, so I used to have someone come into my class with a cap gun, uh, a toy cap gun, and just shoot me. And I would scream and, you know, run behind the desk and cause a huge commotion. And this would all take about 30 seconds. And at the very beginning of class, I would have handed out uh, index cards for students to write on, but they didn't know what was happening. So this would have come as a complete surprise to everyone. And even after the setup of the scene, uh, students are confused and they're wondering, oh my gosh, what just happened? And then I, you know, fast forward to the slide that says, you know, on your index card, please describe what you just saw. And then they would, would know immediately that it was staged. And I would ask them to write with as much detail as possible what happened and describe the details of the attacker. And then rate on a scale from 1 to 10 how confident you are in each of those descriptions. And finally, at the end, I would have a lineup of suspects, too, for them to select from. And suspect 1 through 9. And every so often, I would change the pictures just to you know match up with who I had coming in as the attacker. And they would also rate on a scale from 1 to 10, how confident would you be in convicting the, the person, the suspect you have chosen in a court of law? And everyone was 8, 9, or 10 confident in yeah, the one they selected. And then, of course, I was able to find the, the person, bring them in, and compare what they wrote on the board. We would write everything on the board and with their ratings of confidence. And it was just fascinating how many different you know, descriptions we'd get on the board. And people would be so confident. And they would say, I saw it with my own eyes. I know it was true. I know the guy had blonde hair. And someone else said, no, it was spiky brown. Or someone even said, no, the guy was bald, I think. <laughs> and, and even down to race. It, you know, One time I had someone who was Costa Rican come in, and some people said that he was you know, white with olive complexion. You know, someone said, I know, I think he was white Jewish. <laughs> and then a third of the class said, oh, you know, they're comparing notes. And they're, they're And I said, what, what do you guys think? They said, we, a bunch of us here wrote that we thought he was Asian. And I thought, wow, this is fascinating. Um, and every single time I've done this, all three get on the board that he was wearing jeans, tan khakis, 
and dark slacks, all three get on the board <laughs> without fail every single time. And then when it comes to selecting, you know, the suspects, I never have the person on the list of suspects. Mm -hmm. And yet they're seven, eight, nine or 10 confident that who they selected was who they would convict in a court of law. And so it's really a powerful demonstration. When we bring the person back in, people say, no, he must have changed. He changed his shirt. I know he was wearing red. And in fact, he's wearing gray with maybe a small red logo. I used to do a similar exercise. I actually stopped doing them because of school shootings, even though what happened wasn't as graphic in your as situation. I would just have somebody come in, you know, sort of talk to me, do something bizarre, and then leave, especially when we think about the consequences of it, right? Yeah. So yeah. It, it makes you insecure about your own abilities, but it also it's also scary when Anita was talking about, you know, rating the confidence with which they felt they could identify the perpetrator. I mean, wow, like that's really scary because there is some research out there that says our confidence may be inversely proportional to our level of accuracy in remembering things. So, wow, that means that our criminal justice system, there are some real potential flaws out there. Eyewitness testimony is scientifically considered so problematic, yet it is still the cornerstone of our criminal justice system. There's nothing more impactful than an eyewitness standing up in a courtroom saying, that's the person who did it. Yet research shows that the likelihood that that person has done that accurately is really questionable. You know, another topic related to this issue of, of, of confidence in memory in particular is, is the issue of, of the spacing effect, which this is, this is a concept that comes up in the section on efforts to improve memory within, within chapter five here. And the spacing effect, just to remind students, is, is the tendency to have better long-term memory for information when attempts to study that information are spaced apart rather than being crammed together. Basically, in a, in a, in a more simplistic way, it's basically saying that cramming doesn't work as well as studying on a regular basis in study sessions that are kind of spaced out over time. And there's plenty of research on that, on how spaced studying or spaced learning, which is also called distributed practice, just another term for the same the same thing that some, some researchers use. It's just better. It just helps any, any of us develop a more uh, long-lasting and meaningful memory than like cramming the night before the test. But what's what's especially interesting about that phenomenon to me is that people are very confident in their ability to learn material through cramming, but the the results actually show kind of the opposite that they have they have they have this great confidence for the cramming approach to to, to memory, but their performance is actually weaker than if they study in, in a spaced or, or distributed kind of way. So as our time is, is starting to wind down here for, for this episode of the podcast on Chapter 5, the memory chapter, do either one of you have another topic that you'd like to, to bring up from Chapter 5? Well, when I think about memory, I also, of course, think about forgetting. And a lot of students always, they, they say, oh, I, I just can't remember anything, but re really, I study, but I forget things. And so really, it's a problem with retrieval. And they, they ask why. Of course, they want concrete answers. And I say, well, you know, 
We don't really know exactly why people forget, but there are examples that you probably can relate to. For example, decay. You know, if you learn a foreign language, but you don't use it, what's going to happen? You're going to lose it. And that's pretty straightforward. Interference is where it gets a little bit more complicated with the retroactive and proactive and really learning those distinctions. Yeah. And students really freak out about that when I remind them that the exam is cumulative. The final exam is cumulative. So you have to know these chapters. And then proactive seems that's a little more challenging for a lot of students to remember or understand what that means because they, they say, well, what, what do you mean? You learn something and you have these memories and your current memories prevent you, interfere with your ability to learn new memories. How about this example? I give them a personal example where, you know, I drive a stick shift vehicle. And I get so used to driving that six shift vehicle that no matter what I do, every single time, if I borrow or rent a car uh, and it happens to be an automatic, what am I going to do? You know, I'm naturally going to reach for the clutch in that car. Well, there's no clutch. You get so used to doing a certain thing. And memories aren't just concrete memories for pieces of information knowledge. It's also procedural memories, you know, your, the, the, how you drive a car, how you ride a bicycle, things you do that you are ingrained in your memory. So big thanks to our two guests today. Thanks for joining us. Dr. Anita Tam, who teaches the intro psych class at both Tri-County Technical College and Clemson University in South Carolina, and Dr. Ava Selly, who teaches the class at Arizona State University. And thanks to all of you for listening. We hope this podcast helps you learn and appreciate the material in this chapter. Of course, you should check with your own instructor to see what's most important in your own class. And for more resources for studying this chapter, check out Launchpad at launchpadworks.com. Talk to you again soon. Thank you.